Well, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning of Colossians, and we will be reading just verses 1 and 2 as we look at an introduction to this, this great letter that was written by Paul. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. It is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. So we ask that you would send out your light and your truth. Lord, I don't know the needs, the concerns of all my brothers and sisters that are here this morning. But I pray that through your word, that you would give encouragement, that you would continue to give depth of understanding and and work through your word to to strengthen our worship of you, that the things of this life really would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. We, We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Many of our favorite preachers are known for their distinctive characteristics in their preaching. For instance, Adrian Rogers, uh, one of my favorites, is is known for his Adrianisms. And those are short, pithy statements that um, clarify really deep doctrinal truth in in a simple statement, such as, everything over my head is under God's feet. He also said, reputation is what others think about you. Character is what God knows about you. R.C. Sproul, he was able to explain with remarkable clarity the worldly philosophies, often complicated philosophies, and then simply show how the Word of God uh, refutes those worldly philosophies through texts of Scripture. John MacArthur is known for providing rich historical and cultural depth to each passage as he explains passages verse by verse through Scripture. I know many of you really appreciate Alistair Begg's ministry, and he's known for quoting lots of songs uh, from the 60s and 70s. And so I'm going to take a page out of his book this morning um, to illustrate the main message of the book of Colossians with a turn on the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Well, that song, they they actually wrote as an anthem for the hippie culture of the late 60s. As Brian Epstein, the the Beatles manager, said, quote, it was an inspired song, and they really wanted to give the world a message. The nice thing about it is that it cannot be misinterpreted. It's a clear message saying that love is everything. And I think even in reading that statement, it just shows how the Beatles were so close and yet so far away. If you simply changed one word in their song, love, to Christ, 
you would have the essential message in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That all you need is Christ. And of course, if we did that, the Beatles wouldn't be at all happy with us. And neither would most of their fans or most of the people in this world. Because the message that all you need is Christ is not a popular message. For many people, they would say that's quite offensive and arrogant to even make such a claim. The message of all you need is Christ is no more endearing to people the first century than than it is today. As Paul told the Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to Gentiles. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. As the gospel advanced through the early church, opponents of it claimed that the work of Christ was insufficient to truly pay for our sins. They said the gospel lacked a full understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And although it promised forgiveness, it was ineffective in preventing further sin. It actually encouraged it, some would say. And these were actually the same arguments that were being leveled at the church in Colossae. That their understanding of the gospel was insufficient to truly deal with their problems. And so this morning I want to present an overview message of the book of Colossians in order just to provide a general background for the book and to clarify its overall message. And as journalism students are taught in their basic journalism class, what really matters in an overview is the who, what, where, why, and when. And so that's what I'm going to use as an outline for the message. So first of all, let's look at the who and the where. According to Colossians 1.1, Paul wrote the letter along with Timothy to the church at Colossae. Now Colossae was a city located in the southern part of the Roman province of Asia. That's modern day Turkey. And in the 5th century... The Greek historian Herodotus described Colossae as the great city of Phrygia. That's that region of the world. And then a century later, Xenophon described it as a populous city, wealthy and large. But by the first century B.C., Strabo just called it a small town. And its neighbor Laodicea, 10 miles to the west, appeared to have already surpassed it in prominence by that time. Now, we do know that a catastrophic earthquake hit that region in AD 61. Laodicea ended up getting rebuilt by funding from the Roman emperor himself. But no record is ever even mentioned of Colossae. After this letter by Paul that was written, little extant evidence of the city is found in ancient documents. It's interesting that even the book of Revelation is written to churches in that region of Asia Minor. Seven seven churches in Asia are mentioned, and Colossae is not mentioned. But Laodicea is. So within a generation of Colossians being written, the city appears to have just become a ghost town. The church was apparently planted by Epaphras in the 50s A.D. Because Paul states in Colossians 1.7 that Epaphras was responsible for teaching the gospel to the Colossian believers. Epaphras actually seemed to have a continuing role in the church because uh, in the next verse, Paul describes him as a faithful minister of Christ. 
And according to 4.12, he was a native of Colossae because Paul describes him as one of you. And in the next verse, Paul's reference to Epaphras' labor among the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis suggests that Epaphras either founded the church or he at least played a key role in planting those churches in that region. So when was the letter written? Most likely it was written uh, during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. We know Paul was imprisoned a few times. And so we can't say for certain it was in Rome. Some have argued he was imprisoned in Ephesus or other cities. But most likely it was when he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, According to 1.8, a prophet had come to visit Paul during his imprisonment to inform him of how the churches were doing in that region of the world. And apparently, um, Epaphras at some point ended up getting imprisoned by, along with Paul, because Paul writes to Philemon that is connected with this. That book's connected to Colossians. He writes to Philemon that Epaphras shared in his imprisonment. So Epaphras comes to check in with Paul, and at some point, he ends up getting imprisoned along with him, either voluntarily or maybe he did something to upset the authorities. So the letters of Colossians and Philemon were entrusted by Tychicus to bring back Paul's um, uh, his encouragement, his exhortation to uh, that church. Tychicus was given the letters because um, Epaphras was in prison. And we know that Tychicus, along with Philemon and Onesimus, they are some of the other members of the Colossian church that are mentioned in the Bible. So what's this letter all about? Here's a, uh, uh, that's so hard to come see, unfortunately. It's always t- hard to tell when I write, make these PowerPoints what's going to show up because of the lighting in the room. But here's a brief outline of the message. I'll walk through it real quickly. We have the greeting today, and then Paul presents a prayer for the church. And he argues that all they need is Christ. One, is that easier? Thank you. Thanks, Jason. And then he gives a warning not to be led astray from Christ. And then there's an exhortation to focus on Christ in chapter 3, 1 through 4. And then based upon that exhortation, the implications of what Christ has done on believers. They should pursue holiness, pursue honorable conduct in their households, and they should pursue gospel advancement. And then he gives his concluding, um, concluding greetings to various members of the church. So that's essentially what he writes. Now, why did he write it? Well, Colossians is actually, as you saw in the outline, a pretty straightforward letter. It's not complicated. And I think, again, you could simply summarize it as all that uh, the believers really need to know is that all they need is Christ. Fundamentally, that's, their, that's, that, that's what they need to cling to is that reality. Paul in this letter is expressing his joy at the work of Christ in the believers there. And as he expresses his joy, he's exhorting them not to be led astray from these false teachings that um, are suggesting that Christ is not enough. See, all, they, they're hearing things from their neighbors that seem plausible on the surface, but ultimately they undermine the completeness of what Christ has accomplished. And so the warning that's offered in this letter to the Colossians is, is similar to the warning that you'd see on a bottle of Drano. Not fit for consumption. Right? You don't want to eat that. You don't want to drink that. Don't listen to that stuff. It will poison you. 
The false teaching that Paul is concerned about appears to be largely Jewish in origin. And, and I'll point some of that out in just a minute. But even so, the fundamental error that, 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 that Paul addresses is not just limited to Judaism and false understandings of the Old Testament, but actually it's the fundamental error that's true in almost every religion of humanity. It's an error that's manifested in every philosophy of worldly wisdom. Namely, that it's, 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 it's the error that suggests that our significance is found in our personal accomplishments. What we do. Religion 101 teaches that what you need to do is find out how you can get God for you and not against you. How can you impress God as to your worth? And impress people, including yourself, as to your virtue. How can you impress God and how can you impress people? That's what religion is for, is what worldly philosophy would suggest. How can you make much of yourself and use religion and philosophy to do so? How can you gain respect? How can you gain power? How can you gain security with philosophy? So, there's a... A vertical and a horizontal aspect in all philosophies. Well, most philosophies. I guess there's maybe some exceptions. Right? How can I impress God, get Him on my side, or God's, and how can I impress people? They suggest the following methods might impress God and men. They'll give lists of religious duties you should perform. Praying, going to a temple, giving alms to a poor, there's lists of virtues to pursue, uh, temperance, courage, generosity, honesty, rules that you should follow, things that you should perform, sacrifices that you should make, texts to memorize, doctrines to learn. This is the natural logic of spiritual economics. The more you do, the better things will go for you and the better your life will be. And the biblical phrase for such ideology is elementary principles of the world. This phrase comes up a couple times in Colossians, also in Galatians chapter 4. If you look at Colossians 2.8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He says in Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you've died to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? And this, these are the elementary principles. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that, that as they perish, as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, these teachers are saying, no, this is what you need to do if you really are going to be a devout believer is you need to follow these lists of rules. And who knows where these lists of rules are coming from? Paul says these are just elementary principles of the world, but they're not pertaining to the word of God. They're coming from the flesh. They're according to human precepts and teachings. Paul's point is that Christianity is not like all the religions of the world. 
It's not about what we can do for God, but rather it's entrusting what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And based upon what Paul writes in this letter, it appears that the primary threat to the Colossians, again, was coming from Jews who do not embrace Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. And this is what it appears they're communicating to the Colossians. That they're suggesting that the reason you Gentiles are drawn to Christ is because you don't really understand the Old Testament scriptures like we do. God has been revealing himself for thousands of years. And then some guy comes along and you believe that he's just got the all the truth that you ever needed. But we're the ones that understand the Old Testament. We know how God really wants a person to live. We have the law. You have not been taught proper law keeping. You haven't even been circumcised, which is fundamental to being a Jew. You don't understand the dietary laws. You don't even observe the Sabbath, which is fundamental to Jewish identity. And so to the Jews, absence of such fundamental elements in worship would indicate a complete ignorance of the Scriptures. However, what Paul wants to clarify to the Colossians is that those scriptures actually ultimately point to our need for Christ. See, now that Christ has come and accomplished our redemption, it's no longer necessary for us to follow all of those regulations and laws. Christians don't need to be circumcised in order to demonstrate their commitment to God. He explains in Chapter 2, verse 11. When you Colossian believers were baptized, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. This is when, again, when they got baptized. They don't need a physical circumcision because they've experienced a spiritual circumcision that physical circumcision was pointing forward to. Moreover, he says in 2.16, Let no one pass judgment on you about food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things in the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to Christ. If you got Christ, that's all you need. And this is what Christ was, was trying to expose on the Sermon on the Mount, that the religious system in Judaism, as it developed in the first century, what, um, didn't actually understand the Old Testament scriptures. Judaism had become largely a a man-made religion. And they had created rules and precepts that were based upon the scriptures, but fundamentally misunderstood them. And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ was exposing this misunderstanding of the law. The gospel as preached by the apostles was not actually a, a radical new teaching, It was the logical fulfillment and explanation of what God had already revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was pointing to man's need for Christ. Now, it it had implications for the believers at that time. It has implications for us today. But ultimately speaking, the Old Testament is Christotelic. It points to Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 1.25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you have Christ, you don't need to follow all those Old Testament laws because your righteousness isn't based upon law keeping. It's based upon what he has done. All you need is Christ. You're not lacking in anything for salvation. So by way of illustration, just just imagine with me that in Genesis 7, when the flood came upon the earth, that the sons of Noah, while they were sheltered in the ark, they actually came across another boat that had been hastily built by a number of engineers, expert boat builders, actually, who, when they saw the, the rains coming down and the waters coming up, decided to hastily build a boat together. And because they were expert boat builders, they were confident they could get it done in time. And they did build a boat. And when they came across Noah and his sons, they called out to them and they exhorted them to jump out of the ark and to join them in their boat that they had built. After all, their boat looked better. It had been built by experts. Didn't have any stinky animals inside. Moreover, if Noah and his sons would jump out of their boat and prove their valor, then they would show that they were worthy of being saved from the flood. But if the sons listened to these men and bought into their assertions, they would have perished because that boat is, was built so hastily it was full of cracks and would sink within hours. Noah's, Noah and his sons were already safe in the ark. They had no need to doubt the security that God had presented to them in his instructions to Noah. And Paul's point to the Colossians is to not be deceived into thinking that Christ isn't enough. Don't think that you have to be experts in the Old Testament. Don't think that you have to get circumcised. That you have to perform all these things. All those things are a shadow that point to what you ultimately need is Christ. If you have Christ, you're secure. Your salvation is secure in Him. All you need is Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures that you will ever need. The second thing you want to do is provide encouragement There's a strong, strong sense of encouragement in this letter. Note 2, 5, chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, For even though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He wants them to know, I have have complete confidence in you. You're, You're manifesting that you have genuine faith. Don't feel like you're lacking in anything. Note even that he begins the letter with thanksgiving for the evidence of the gospel's work in their life as it's manifested in their hope, in their love, in their faith. Consider also that Paul addresses them initially as saints and faithful brothers. The the significance of calling them saints emphasizes two things. First of all, that they've been made holy. That's what saint means. They have been purified. They've been set apart for him. So not only do they have right standing, perfect right standing with God, having received Christ's righteousness and being made holy, therefore they're saints. They also, the implication of that is 
having been made holy, they've also been set apart from the rest of the world. They don't need all that rest of the world's empty philosophy and vanity that the world pursues. All they need is Christ. They've been set apart. And Paul will explain the implications of that more fully in chapter 3. He also calls them faithful brothers. Faithful brothers. Notice in, he describes them as faithful brothers in that he's saying there's nothing wrong with you. You're not lacking anything that would evidence that you're not really holy. You are saints. You, you've done everything you need. You have faith in Christ. If you have Christ, that's sufficient. So he wants to encourage him. You're not lacking anything. If you have Christ, you're a saint. And based upon the evidence of Christ's work in your life, as seen in your faithfulness, you don't have anything to worry about. Don't listen to these people that would lead you away from Christ. Thirdly, he wants to teach them theology. He wants them to fully understand all the richness that has been given to them in their faith in Christ. Beginning with redemption and forgiveness. This is usually what we think of as the benefits of salvation. That in trusting in Christ, we are redeemed from our sin. We are forgiven for our sins, right? In Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. According to chapter 2, verse 13, we're forgiven because Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. His point is, if you're in Christ, all your sins, all your transgressions are paid for. You're not lacking in anything for forgiveness. So you have redemption and forgiveness. You also have reconciliation with God and peace with God. All right, this, was, this was Christ's ultimate purpose in the incarnation, that he would restore us to our relationship with God the Father. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or, or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Making peace particularly with God. Through Christ, no longer are we God's enemies, but there is peace, there is shalom in our relationship with the Lord. Being in Christ also brings about spiritual life. The theological term for this is regeneration. The Old Testament term was to have a, a circumcised heart. Paul, uh, uh, Jesus uses the phrase to be born again to Nicodemus. Paul's phrase is to be made alive or to be a new creation. If you look at Colossians 2.13, he says, You who are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God is made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Colossians 3.3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's your life. He's your spiritual life. Moreover, regeneration produces faith and hope and love. We see that Colossians 1, 4 through 5. He says, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And such the regeneration that being in Christ produces is a transformed life. That's why he says in chapter three, seek the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
All you need is in Christ. And if you're in Christ, because your heart's been transformed, you no longer live for the things of this world, but you set your mind on things above, you're going to put off the deeds of the flesh, put aside those things that the world clamors for, and you're going to put on virtue. You're going to put on good behavior. And then he explains the implications of that on relationships within the home. Now, a common fear uh, fear that appears with such good news, and I'm sure the Colossians were faced with this, is that if people are told that all of their sins are forgiven and that they can have assurance that they're going to go to heaven, that's just going to encourage licentiousness. It's going to just encourage sin because if people know there's no longer a consequence for their sins, they're just going to sin all the more. Paul's constantly having to deal with this argument, right? In, in Romans, he says, you know, let us sin so that grace may abound. He says, may it never be. Right? That's a lie. If, in fact, you have faith in Christ, then you've been born again. Then you've been transformed. You have a circumcised heart. If that's the case, you would no longer want to do those things. Those things are now the things that you hate. And instead, you do the things that you love. You desire to please Christ. See, even though indwelling sin remains and a believer can be drawn to sin again, we can be drawn into temptation, and we are frequently, yet ultimately we hate those things. We're ashamed of those things. And we seek to repent from those things when they're exposed. A believer is compelled to put sin to death and to put on holy living because of what Christ has done for them. So regeneration also brings about a desire to live a holy life. Fourthly, one of the benefits Paul draws out is glorification. See, not only are, are Christians transformed inwardly by being in Christ, our heart is changed, but we're also promised that eventually, one day, we will rise again and have a glorified flesh. We will receive resurrected bodies that are completely pure from sin. Right. Look at chapter one, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One day that will be true of every believer in Christ. No more sin. And no more sin will you ever commit because you will be completely purified. It will be eradicated not only from your heart, but from your flesh. Your mind will be completely changed. And this speaks to the assurance that we have of our ultimate glorification. Notice what he says in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's not just talking about the sphere of glory. You also will be glorified. You will be with him in glory. He says, 127, That to the Gentiles, God chose to make him known among the Gentiles, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope is you're going to be glorified, right? So it's not just, Paul doesn't want the Colossian believers just to rejoice in the fact that they're forgiven and redeemed, but to know one day that work will be fully accomplished in glory. So all the grief that you feel right now, Christian, 
as you agonize over your sin and you feel the shame over the stupid things that you do from day to day, as, as I do, we can rest knowing that one day we are promised that sin will be done. We will be glorified. And along with this glorification, we'll receive an inheritance that will make our greatest achievements in this life appear like peanuts. That's why Paul can confidently tell slaves in chapter 3 to work heartily in their labor to whether those masters are believers or unbelievers. He says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. I need to tell slaves, just keep working hard. Even though you may not receive anything but painful labor in this life, one day you will receive an inheritance that will make up for all of the pain and loss that you've experienced in this life. As slaves. He gives a similar encouragement in chapter 1 to all believers. That the knowledge of our future inheritance should strengthen us. Give us endurance and patience and joy as we wait. Look at Colossians 1.12. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father. Why should we give thanks to the Father? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We're fully qualified for that inheritance because we're in Christ. Paul wants to know that all of these things belongs to you if you're a follower of Christ. And we all share in these things, not because we've accomplished them by the result of our discipline, by our rigorous study, or by our intelligence, or because of our bloodlines. No, all these things are ours simply because Christ was faithful and He provided a means wherein we could be reconciled to God. They're ours because we're Christ's. And so this is why Paul is writing. This is why Paul writes the letter to Colossians. What he wants them to know in essence is that all you need, Colossians, is Christ. So that's why Paul writes the letter, but why should we... Study this letter today as a church. Well, here's some ideas or some reasons. And I'm sure we'll have even more reasons after we're done studying this book. It'd be a great conversation to have is what more have we gained through Colossians in studying it? But in anticipation, I would say it will deepen our understanding of the gospel. It will strengthen our appreciation for what Christ has done for us. And I think it will provide us with a, a, a stronger assurance of our salvation because many of us are often shaken and discouraged as we see our own sin, our own failures, our own weakness. Um, it's easy to doubt. Well, has Christ really changed my heart? Well, I think in recognizing all that Christ has accomplished will strengthen the assurance that you can have that you are saved. It will also help us to discern the difference between what true Christians look like and false Christians. Uh, Paul's going to go head on at the tendency towards legalism and perfectionism and self-righteousness, which are, we're all tempted to. And it looks different in different people because of our backgrounds, because of how we're raised, different religions we might have grown up in, uh, different cultures. 
So self-righteousness takes on different forms. Often it takes on different forms within families. And therefore, people aren't always aware of it. In fact, many of the things that, that would be considered legalistic or self-righteous, we actually would consider to be virtues. And so very things that we would boast in are actually evidence of a failure of understanding what Christ has done. And I think that, that, that will be exposed as we study this. It will also increase a desire for ministry. Paul, who is writing this letter, clearly had a solid grasp of what Christ had done for him. I mean, that's why he said in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Well, notice what he says in Colossians 1.28. This is the heart of a person who gets all who understands. This is the implication. This is, what, this is what a per, how a person thinks who understands what Christ has done. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, this, this is the one thing I do. I want to see other people's grow in their maturity in Christ. This is what I live for. This is what I labor for. This is what keeps me up at night is how are my brothers and sisters doing in their maturity? What are they, what are they lacking in understanding? What are they, how do they fail to understand the implications of what they do understand? What else can I do? The more you understand that all you need is Christ, the more you understand is that that's all anybody else needs. And of course, it's not just, it's not enough just to know that fact. That's all you need to know to be saved. But as you understand all that you've been given in Christ, as your depth of understanding uh, increases, then your desire to live, to just simply help people understand that the implications of Christ increases as well. Both for believers, that's what Paul's speaking of in Colossians 1, 28, 29, but also in evangelism. Paul closes the letter exhorting the Colossians to evangelism. Colossians chapter 4, 5. He tells them, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Be ready to share the truth. That's the implications here. With outsiders. The book, I think, will also expose the emptiness of worldly pursuits. Why do I say that? Well, as we mature in Christ, as we grow in our understanding, we begin to see the vanity of the things of this world. Those things just become less attractive because we realize they really don't matter much. Because this world is passing away and everything in it. As, as C.T. Studd said, um, only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so those things just mean less and less. I mean, at, at some point in your life, if you're an adult, I assume you stopped watching cartoons on a regular basis. And it probably didn't happen just one day. But slowly over time, those Saturday morning cartoons just weren't as funny. They weren't as interesting. They weren't as engaging. Um, you would rather spend your time doing something of more substance. 
Same could be tra- said maybe of video games or uh, listening to children's silly songs, reading comic books. It's not that those things were evil, but as you grow up, you realize this is childish. This, this, this has no implications on having a good life, so to speak. Well, the same can be said as we mature in Christ. All right, we, we, it, it doesn't mean that we don't do the things anymore, or we can't be even drawn away for a time to things that are of insignificance. But the more we grow in understanding what Christ has done and its implications, the more that's the one thing that we just want to live for. And so all the vanity, wealth, respect, prestige, all the lusts of the flesh, they just diminish in their interest in our heart. And notice how Paul prays for this to happen in chapter 1. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See that? As they grow in knowledge of His will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, they will then walk in a manner not just that's acceptable to God, where he's not ashamed of them, he's not shocked, he's not angry, but they're fully pleasing to him. The more you understand of God and his word and the richness of the founder Christ, the more you will walk in a manner that is pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and still increasing in the knowledge of God. That's why Paul exhorts the Colossians in chapter 3. We'll close with this. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Lord, we ask quite simply that you would help us to do just that. Over the the course of weeks as we study this book, that you would help us, not just Sunday by Sunday, to set our mind upon you, but teach us to set our mind upon you day by day, really minute by minute. Lord, that we would learn to walk in a manner that is fully pleasing to you. And that we really would increase in our understanding, not that we would just grow in our knowledge, because we know that knowledge in itself just puffs up. But Lord, we, we ask that you would increase our knowledge so that we would love And not love in just a sentimental way, but sacrificial love. Lord, love in a a 1 Corinthians 13 way. Because we don't want to be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. We're not seeking to compete with one another, but to to compete for one another. And so God God causes us to be a, a, a church that exalts you and that exalts your son that exalts the spirit and that is defined by love and genuine affection we ask all these things in christ's name amen